The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Suggested that there was no benefit with uh, liberal transfusion, which is the higher threshold, compared to a restrictive transfusion of seven. There was no difference in mortality between a liberal and a restrictive group. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's article is titled, Long-Term Outcomes Among Patients Discharged from the Hospital with Moderate Anemia. It was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, December 18, 2018. Our discussant for this podcast is Dr. Jeff Carson, who is a co-author on this paper. Jeff is the provost of the Rutgers Biomedical Health Science He's also a distinguished professor of medicine and the Richard C. Reynolds, MD chair in general internal medicine at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Dr. Carson practices both inpatient and outpatient internal medicine. He's well known for his research determining the risk of anemia and indications for red blood cell transfusion. He continues to do research in this area and has great experience to discuss the implications of this important article. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. This article that came out in December was very, very interesting to me, and I was fairly familiar with your work from discussing this with you over the years. But for the sake of the audience and to make sure that we understand why this paper is so important, could you give us the background of how you even thought back in the day to think about the right level for transfusions, what studies were done, and what was the process of converting those study findings into guidelines? Sure. Thank you so much, Bob, for inviting me to participate in this podcast. It's a real pleasure. So our work on understanding transfusion thresholds began a long time ago. The very first piece of evidence that was generated was way back in 1999, in which Paul Bear led a trial in critical care patients in which they compared a 10 threshold to a 7 threshold. And you have to be old enough to go back to those years to understand that it was very common practice that we would maintain a patient's hemoglobin level above 10 because we thought that that would improve the patient's outcomes. This trial, which was in about 800 patients or so, suggested that there was no benefit with uh, liberal transfusion, which is the higher threshold, compared to a restrictive transfusion of seven. And if anything, it looked like there was a trend favoring the lower threshold in these ICU patients. I then got involved with the whole topic because we were very concerned about the patients with underlying cardiovascular disease. And in fact, we still have uncertainties in that group. And so we replicated a trial in hip fracture patients who had underlying cardiovascular disease and risk factors. That was called the FOCUS trial, published back in 2011 now. It took a while to get it going and completed. 
And that trial compared a 10 threshold, so-called liberal threshold of 10, to an eight or symptoms, which was defined as the restrictive group. And basically, we enrolled around 2,000 patients. And what we showed was that there was no difference in functional outcomes, the ability to walk independently without human assistance. Since these were in hip fracture patients post-op, that was an incredibly important outcome. And we looked at a whole slew of other outcomes, other functional measures, mortality, and other events, and basically found no benefit of liberal transfusion over restrictive. So what's followed from that is a whole series of trials with similar designs done and published in high-impact journals. Early in the years, we had several thousand patients who had been randomized. We were doing meta-analysis back then, and we did not have the ability to look at clinical outcomes because there were too few events. But as time has accumulated, we now have over 19,000 patients, Bob, that have been randomized in clinical trials comparing a liberal versus a restrictive transfusion strategy. They're all a little different. They're in different populations of patients. But the results are really clear in demonstrating overall that there was no difference in mortality between a liberal and a restrictive group. In fact, in our latest meta-analysis, the relative risk is actually 1.0 with very tight confidence intervals around 15% around that risk ratio. So clear clearly showing no difference overall in liberal versus restrictive. So clearly, if you don't need to use more blood, then you expose patients to less blood, the side effects, which are uncommon but real related to transfusion, and you reduce the expense. The overall evidence would suggest that a restrictive transfusion strategy is safe in most patients. Now, let me just quickly point out that there are subgroups that there are still concerns Acute MI is a group that we do not have almost any evidence in. And in fact, I'm leading a trial called MINT in that field. We have about 840 patients who've been randomized so far. We're trying to get to 3,500 patients. There's another trial similar to that that's being done in Europe with a target sample size of about 600. There are some uncertainties with patients with chronic cardiovascular disease, but I still think that the overall evidence points to restrictive being safe in that group. So we've taken that evidence, we've done the meta-analysis that I referred to, and then of course, when you do guidelines, the first thing you do are systematic reviews, and you look for the evidence, and then that will guide the creation of the recommendations that we have to clinicians. And those have been published in the last year or so. And basically, they recommend a restrictive transfusion strategy of seven to eight, and recognizing once again that there's some subgroups that we don't have good evidence in. So that's the underlying scientific basis of why a restrictive transfusion approach has been, I think, clearly validated in high-quality clinical trial evidence. But what happens then is you start to ask the question, well, trials are in selected groups of patients. They're in specific subgroups. When you look at the proportion of patients who you start with who are potentially eligible but ultimately get in the study, it's a small minority. So you always worry about whether it's a selection bias. And so you ask the question, are these results truly applicable across a very broad spectrum of patients? And that's where this study comes in. So then you go to an observational study, which is this is a large cohort study in which Dr. Narek Rabinian led an analysis in the Northern Kaiser database looking at the outcomes and the transfusion practices in these patients. So that, that's the background. And I think this study complements the clinical trial evidence and really allows you to say, does the clinical trial evidence apply to real-life situations? And I think in this analysis would suggest yes. 
And that's why I think it's so important. And I expect that that's the reason the Annals was interested in publishing this work. Have there been skeptics who argued that we didn't have non-randomized controlled data to evaluate these guidelines? Is this in response to such skeptics? I don't think so. There has been a huge amount of evidence that's been generated, observational evidence that have said people who get more blood compared to people who get less blood in an observational study, those have largely not been reliable. But the answer to your question is no. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there's skeptics all the time in medicine, of course. We work with a group of colleagues who ask questions, and I think that's really important and terrific. So I would not say it's been widely accepted, Bob, that going to a restrictive approach is the way to go. And if you look at blood use in the U.S., so you look at blood use across the world, it's dropped tremendously based upon this evidence. But it's reassuring to look to see is well, this sounds good, but are we potentially doing any harm? And I think this NARIC study clearly says, no, we're not doing harm in large populations of people. So I think it's very helpful. Great. Let's go over some of the details of the study for people who want to go back and look at it. So let's start out with the definitions of mild, moderate, and severe anemia. There are lots of definitions of anemia. What we relied on was the World Health Organization's first criteria of anemia being defined as less than 12 in women and less than 13 in men. This is grams per deciliter, assuming you live in the U.S. In other parts of the world, it would be 120 grams per liter or 130 grams per liter for those who might be listening from other countries. And then so mild anemia was defined as when the hemoglobin was less than those standards to 10 Moderate anemia was less than 10 to 7, so a 7 to 10 gram area. That's kind of the sweet zone where we always are having discussions. And then below 7 was defined as severe anemia. Great. So since this is a retrospective study, the results are fairly easy to understand, but I was particularly impressed with some of the findings in Table 2. And why don't we go over each of these What's so great about this is we have data starting in 2010 and going to 2014, and all of these differences are highly statistically significant. So let's go through each one of them, and that is the number of transfusions done per hospitalization over that time. That table, for those of you who might look at the papers on page four in that edition, and what you see here is the red cell units per 100 hospitalizations, which I think is often something that's sometimes difficult to understand. And it went from 42 per 100 hospitalizations down to 28. That's a huge drop. That's a 25 to 30% drop in blood use. I think clinicians can understand perhaps a little easier is the pre-transfusion hemoglobin, the mean was 8.2 in 2010 and went down to 7.2 in 2014. So you really have a whole gram lower threshold overall in this population of patients. And then what follows, of course, is the proportion of patients who got transfused is much less. So from 31% all the way down to 23%. So very impactful in terms of the amount of blood use. And it looks like it's related to the pre-transfusion hemoglobin threshold that was used at these hospitals. Well, this is very exciting. We often get criticized as physicians for not responding to new information in medicine. And they say it takes 19 years before you get a response or 17 years before you get a response. 
And this is a pretty fast response to have this much of a drop. And the guidelines were changing during this time, but it was your articles and your colleagues' articles that were making this case and getting hospitals to put procedures into place and getting a variety of people to work on this problem. So that's just very dramatic. What's the impact of this? Was there any difference in six-month mortality? I know there's a slight increase in discharge with moderate anemia. Again, the 7 to 10 range. Obviously, if we're not transfusing, we're going to discharge a higher percentage of people with moderate anemia. Does that have any impact on outcomes? Well, not that was measured in this study. And this is really why it's so important. It's one thing to show that you can reduce blood use, but you certainly want to also show that you're not adversely impacting clinical events. And if anything, the overall mortality dropped a little bit. Now, this is also, of course, in the background. This is a historical study. And partly what this says is clinical care has improved and patients are doing better. And they're for lots and lots of reasons, not just because of blood. Blood still may not be a critical part of patient survival. But clearly, we're not showing any harm by reducing blood use. And NARIC's analysis compared it to not only mortality in this group of patients, but to the overall population of patients and was able to show that there really were no differences. And so I find this very reassuring. Now, this is big clinical events, though. We're looking at mortality, and we don't have symptoms, for example, which is, of course, very important to our patients. And that sort of information is not measured here, but at least at the higher level, it's clear that patients are not being harmed. And Bob, I'll tell you that there are two trials that have looked at long-term outcomes the most recent trial called the TRIX-3 trial, which was in cardiac surgery, which just published their results, their six-month follow-up in cardiac surgery and showed that the restrictive group did just as well as the liberal group. And in the focus trial that I mentioned to you before, we actually followed people all the way out to three years on average and found no difference. So these results are consistent with the trial data as well. well that's great. So what is our responsibility for these anemic patients? I think this is an area, Bob, that we have not been adequately addressing. And it's really the next phase of a comprehensive care of our patients who are anemic. So blood transfusion is part of that strategy. We hope it's a limited part of that strategy, but then it's identifying the underlying cause and then treating it. And there's a sense sometimes that clinicians just say, well, they're just anemic. No, they're not Anemia is a problem. It's an important problem. It's a problem if we can treat effectively, is likely in many patients to improve their quality of life, how they function, how they feel, the nature of their fatigue, their sense of well-being and such. So it's an area that deserves careful attention by both our inpatient and our outpatient clinicians. I think that we don't have research very much research at this point that has established a strategy about how to do this. But I think good clinical care, we all know about the basics of treating anemia. And when you have someone who's bled and who has iron deficiency, then get on top of that and make sure the patient gets the supplemental iron that they need, either PO or intravenously. If they have underlying conditions that are leading to the anemia, that's obviously more challenging and you need to treat those underlying conditions if the anemia is going to resolve. But the key point here is that I think we do need more research here to come up with effective strategies. And most importantly, that we take it seriously, that we address it, and we use our fundamental internal medicine skills that we all have to try to effectively treat this problem. I've heard anecdotally, and I don't know the literature behind this, that many people with what we have called anemia of chronic disease or anemia of chronic inflammation, and some people are now calling iron-restricted hematopoiesis, that some of those people actually respond to IV iron. 
Have you seen this? Is this just something that we don't know enough about just yet? We don't know enough about this. The randomized trials, which is what I think our best evidence is in terms of that question, this has been studied reasonably carefully in cancer patients. And what those trials have basically shown that if you give erythropoietin plus intravenous iron, they respond better than if they just get erythropoietin. In patients in the non-cancer setting, I don't believe there are good clinical trials that have established whether or not intravenous iron makes a difference in that situation, and that's certainly an area that more work is required. So there are times, if you ask me what I personally do, if I think there's superimposed iron deficiency, and sometimes it's pretty hard to figure that out given the complicated clinical scenario that we're talking about, then I will try a course of intravenous iron. But I don't have evidence, Bob, that I can quote in terms of how frequently patients will respond. Well, this has been a tremendous conversation, Jeff. You've really explained the situation very well, and I know that it'll have a positive impact on many of the listeners. Could you give us what you think the most important point is in this article? And are there any big questions that we should be looking forward to the answers in this area in the near future? So the clinical trial data suggests that a restrictive transfusion approach of seven to eight is safe in most patients. This analysis, this paper by Dr. Narek Rubinian and colleagues has shown that in large populations of patients, that when you apply a restrictive transfusion approach, that you reduce blood use, you reduce the pre-transfusion hemoglobin with no apparent effect on mortality or rehospitalizations, that a key element in the care of these patients must be that you address their cause of their anemia, that you aggressively try to treat it. And I think what the future looks like is on a, on a number of fronts. One is, I think we're working aggressively at trying to understand whether the cardiovascular disease patient is different, especially in acute MI. We also need further evidence to guide us on how to best manage these anemic patients and what strategies will be most effective in improving the outcomes of our patients. Well, Jeff, thank you so very much. This has been a great discussion. And thank you, Bob. It's been my privilege to participate in this activity. Thank you for inviting me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This very interesting article builds upon work that Jeff and many others have done to develop the latest transfusion guidelines. The discussion of this article reemphasizes the importance of limiting transfusions as much as is feasible. This article supports the concept of very conservative approach to transfusions and in general not giving transfusions until the hemoglobin drops below 7. These guidelines only refer to acute transfusion, but in our conversation it is clear that we still have a responsibility to address the causes of anemia and to try to address that anemia for the long-term benefit of our patients. We hope that this podcast has shed some light and made clear our thoughts about transfusions in the hospital and long-term management of anemia. Thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. 
The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.